And as they're leaving, would you turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the book of Joel, the Old Testament book of Joel. And if you need a Bible, uh, I'd encourage you, first of all, I'd encourage you to keep it open in front of you this morning. Uh, But if you need one, we have several back here on our resource table. Feel free to grab one and open it up to Joel. And if you don't have one at all, uh, please keep that and let it be our gift to you this morning. So if you're new around here, we have spent the better part of this year studying a part of the Bible that no one studies, and that's the Old Testament minor prophets. Um, Thus far, we have walked through, I believe, nine books in the Old Testament uh, spanning a, a time period of somewhere around 500 years. And in this time period, we have seen a number of things happen. We saw Israel go from being a single nation in the days of King David and King Solomon to experiencing a civil war, in some ways not unlike the American Civil War. It pitted north against south, and that one nation divided into a northern kingdom that continued to be called Israel, uh, and yet was thoroughly pagan, was thoroughly off the rails uh, in worship of false gods, and then also a southern kingdom called Judah, which was where the city of Jerusalem was. And the people of Judah were much more up and down. There were seasons in their history where they followed the Lord, and there were seasons where they didn't follow the Lord, and yet their trajectory bent towards not following the Lord and worshiping other false gods. And so what ultimately happened for both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom was that they were invaded by outside powers, they were overtaken, and they were scattered in exile. And so the northern kingdom was invaded by Assyria and sort of scattered to the wind. The southern kingdom was conquered by Babylon, and those people were carried away to the city of Babylon. So if you've ever read the story of Daniel in the Old Testament, that's about that time period when the people were carried away in exile. And so where we're at now in our study is what's known as the post-exilic age. The people of Judah, the remnant that is left, are now returning to the land that they were taken away from. They're returning to Jerusalem. They're starting the process of rebuilding the city, rebuilding the temple there that was destroyed. If you've ever read the Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah, that's what those books are all about. We just got done studying the book of Haggai, and today we're going to launch into the book of Joel. And I was telling uh, some of our men at our Monday night men's prayer gathering this past week that if there's any book within the 12 Old Testament minor prophets that I would love to skip. It's the book of Joel. And that's because Joel is like notoriously obtuse. It is notoriously difficult to understand and interpret. And one of the reasons why is because it's really difficult to establish context in the book of Joel. And context is essential if we're going to interpret the word of God correctly. Asking questions, who wrote this? When was it written? Who were they writing to? What was the cultural situation that they were a part of at the time? Like all of these are important questions. And yet when we get to the book of Joel, those things are just not clear. The writer of the book of Joel, if it's Joel, like we don't know who he is really. We don't know what time period he was writing in. Uh, Biblical scholars have posited at least seven different possible dates for the writing of the book of Joel that also spans a five, six hundred year period, and a lot happens in five, six hundred years at this point in time. 
And so it can be really challenging. But what we're going to do this morning, we're going to place it here because we've been studying these books in chronological order. We're going to place it here in what's known as the post-exilic period. I think that's where the book of Joel fits best. And there are a few reasons for this that I'll mention. First of all, Joel seems to reference the exile that I just talked about, that exile to Babylon, he seems to reference that exile in the past tense in chapter three of this book. And this book is only three chapters long. He also seems to be aware of some other Old Testament prophets that would have come about in the exilic period when the people were scattered. So prophets like Zephaniah and Nahum and Ezekiel, at at points in time, Joel almost seems to quote directly from some of those Old Testament prophets. Joel also references uh, the temple in Jerusalem as if it is a present reality. Uh, which would not make sense in that exilic period because the temple would have been destroyed at that point, but it does make sense in the post-exilic period because the people return and they rebuild the temple. And he also, interestingly, does not mention any kings in this book. And if you've been with us for most of this study, you know that all of these prophets have referenced the kings who were in power at the time in which they were writing. Joel doesn't do anything like that. And it would make sense in the post-exilic period because the monarchy would have essentially been disbanded at this point. It would not have been in place. And so that's where we're going to situate this book historically. But unfortunately, our task here is still really challenging. Joel, in prophetic and poetic form, calls the Hebrew people to repentance. And yet, very much unlike the other prophets, he never mentions what their sins actually are. If you know the other minor prophets, they talk about all kinds of different sins that the people of Israel were engaged in. But Joel is really general. He never mentions anything specifically when he talks about repentance. He also speaks of a coming like military assault as well as a coming judgment from God. But it's not immediately clear if that's something that's imminent, like about to happen, or if it's a few years down the road on the horizon, or if he's talking about something that's like at the end of time. And we'll dig into that a little bit more this next week. So to get us started today, let's read our text. We're going to Joel chapter 2, and then over this week and next week, we're going to consider not only the meaning and purpose of this book, but also its implications for us today. Let's go to Joel chapter 2, and we're going to begin in verse 11. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster." Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast 
call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? The word of the Lord. All right. I was in college when the attacks of September 11th took place. Uh, someone that morning uh, knocked on my dorm room door and woke me up. And we turned on the TV and sat there watching the news coverage on the TV and did that all morning. I think classes were canceled that day, as I recall. And, and like most people, we initially thought that some terrible accident had taken place. Right? Do you remember this? It just seemed like, man, something horrific has happened, but it just wasn't clear at first what had happened exactly until, if you remember that moment, watching the news when that second plane hit the tower, and then it was clear right, that this wasn't some accident. This was obviously some sort of premeditated act some sort of premeditated act of terrorism. Two planes don't just randomly happen to hit towers just all of a sudden without somebody setting that into motion. That was a Tuesday in 2001, and I remember there was a Christian ministry on our college campus that every Tuesday had a chapel service. And, I mean, this was a school of at least 12,000 students, and on a good Tuesday, they might get 100 students to come out to a chapel service, right? And yet, I remember rounding the corner on that Tuesday and seeing this enormous line down the block of kids that were trying to get in, and they literally didn't have enough room for everybody who wanted to be there on that Tuesday, I think they wound up doing multiple chapel services throughout the day. And this was actually the scene, not just on my campus, and not just on college campuses in general, but it was the scene around the country. Some of you will recall the following Sunday, after that Tuesday, churches were filled across the country. There was an enormous spike in church attendance, but it did not last. Duke University professor and director of what's called the National Congregation Study, Mark Chavez, says that people thought that this type of crisis of national significance would lead people to be more religious. And it did, he says, but it was very short-lived. There was a blip in church attendance, and then it went back to normal. And I think what people really suddenly wanted in that moment was not necessarily a life of devotion to Christ. What they wanted was comfort. In a moment of uncertainty, people wanted to know that everything was going to be okay. And as soon as they felt some semblance of comfort, their lives returned to status quo. But isn't it telling that in a moment of uncertainty, in a moment of crisis, the natural inclination that many people felt was to turn to God, or at least the things of God. It was a moment, albeit short-lived, 
where people truly felt helpless. Have you ever considered that one of the biggest barriers that many of us will face to living a life of true surrender to Christ is not only like the relative wealth and comfort that we enjoy, which is something Jesus talks a lot about. He talks a lot about the challenge of having financial means. And that's a big barrier. But it's also the fact that most of us live with a significant level of personal autonomy. Here's what I mean. For most of us, in general, if we want something to happen, it will happen eventually. Now, I'm not talking about like, like world peace. I'm talking about everyday stuff. If I want to go on vacation, we're going to go on vacation, right? If I want to eat steak for dinner tonight, we're going to eat steak for dinner tonight. If I want to quit my job and get another job, I can quit my job and get another job. Most of us have that level of autonomy, which is not true for a lot of the world, right? Many, many people don't enjoy that level of autonomy. And that doesn't mean that we can just snap our fingers and poof, something appears. But it does mean that most of us, if not all of us in the room this morning, are not living in states of powerlessness. We're not living in states of depression or uh, desperation. And we're not in situations where we have great need. And on the surface, I think that seems to us like a good thing. The problem, though, is that our abundance, our freedom, our, auto our autonomy can actually lull us into a state in which we forget that any sense of autonomy that we have personally is like an illusion compared to God's autonomy and God's sovereignty. Any sense of power that we think we have is nothing compared to his power. And faith, like true Christian faith, really thrives when we are most aware of our neediness and when we're most aware of our helplessness and our, our powerlessness and our, our inability to really facilitate change. Many of us have felt this over the last year and a half, two years with covid I mean, there, there were moments in 2020 of just complete powerlessness for many people and confusion and inability to exercise autonomy. So what if there was something that actually helped people to find and remain in that place, that place of recognizing God's great power and autonomy and also recognizing my own helplessness and powerlessness in the face of his power. What if there was something that helped us stay there and helped us remember that life is fragile and that there are so many things that are outside of our control? What if it helped us remember, as the writer of Proverbs said, that we should trust in the Lord with all our heart and, and not lean on our own understanding? What if there was something culturally in your life that existed that constantly brought you back to those moments in your life, those moments of need and desperation, so as to foster a deeper trust in God? I think that is exactly what the book of Joel is. 
I think that's exactly what its purpose is. Joel is a sort of cultural liturgy. It is a stone of remembrance. It's an Ebenezer, as John talked about earlier. It reminds the people of Israel of the promises of God, but also the ways that he has used seasons of devastation national tragedies and calamities in the past, he's used those things to call his people back to him, to wake them up to their sin and to their self-focus. It's a reminder to the people, guys, we don't want to go back there. And so we pick up today in Joel 2 at a pivotal moment. The image that the prophet gives us is that a great and powerful army is encamped against the people of Judah. And it's almost as if the Lord himself is standing in front of this army, shouting orders like he's a general. And this comes on the heels of chapter one in which Joel described a massive infestation of locusts. This whole chapter one is about this infestation of locusts and the devastation that it caused to the land. It had plunged the people into a season of famine and had undoubtedly caused a great deal of like hunger and suffering within the land. Joel began chapter one. You can look there with me in chapter one, starting in verse two. And here's what he said. Listen to this. Hear this, you elders, give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? And then in verse three, he says, tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and let their children tell another generation. So the whole book begins with Joel saying, don't let people forget this. Don't let people forget what happened. Pass it on. And what is the thing that they are not to forget? Verse 4, he says, What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. So there have been these waves of infestation. And most scholars believe that this was an actual event that took place probably at some point in the past. He's calling their minds to remember. Remember that devastating period? And when everything was decimated, not just one locust group, but multiple locust groups that just seemed to do more and more and more harm. And then throughout the rest of chapter one, he just describes the ways that the animals and the plant life and the land are just gone. Massive devastation that plunged the people into famine. And the rest of uh, chapter one describes that in detail. And then we get into chapter two. And what we see is that Joel actually uses that event that took place in the past to serve as an analogy for a future day that could come if the people don't keep their eyes focused on the Lord. Like if they don't continually repent of their sin and continually return to the Lord, it's as if there is this army on the horizon in the way that the locusts swarmed into the land. Hence the call to remind your children and to remind your grandchildren, and to remind your great-grandchildren, and so on, and so on. So chapter 2, with the specter of this army encamped against the people, the call is this, verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, 
return to me. Even in this moment, return to me with all your heart. He says, do it with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. The Old Testament writers use that line over and over and over and over again. God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he loves to relent over disaster. He goes on to say in verse 14, who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him and a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. And so the call here is to true repentance, not just feeling sorry for one's actions. It is like turning and living differently. Hence all of this language about essentially having like a consecration service, like a worship gathering that, that's, that sole point is to rededicate ourselves to the Lord and to weep and to fast and to mourn over sin and to, to turn and be different. And what the Lord emphasizes here through Joel is that he wants the real thing from his people. He wants real repentance, not just a show of repentance. And so we get this famous line, rend your hearts and not your garments. So this is referencing like a cultural practice in which people would literally like tear their clothes off in, in, in moments of grief, in moments of mourning. For example, in 2 Samuel 13, Daniel's son Absalom kills Daniel's other sons in battle. And it says in 2 Samuel 13, in uh, verse 30, it says, while they were on the way, news came to David, Absalom has struck down all the king's sons and not one of them is left. And then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth, and all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. So that they rent their clothing in this moment of grief and sorrow. Joel says, though, I don't just want torn garments. I don't want a show of repentance. I don't want a show of grief and mourning. What I want is for your hearts to be torn open in repentance. I want them to be rent over the things that you've done. And what is repentance if it isn't turning from walking in your own autonomy and in your own power and authority to actually living more fully in God's autonomy and God's power and authority? Charles Spurgeon, that old British preacher, said that heartrending is divinely wrought and solemnly felt. Like it's something happening inside of you. It is a secret grief which is personally experienced, not in mere form, but as a deep, soul-moving work of the Holy Spirit upon the inmost heart of each believer. It is not a matter to be merely talked of and believed in, but keenly and sensitively felt in every living child of the living God. So he's saying that this isn't something that just some people should experience, but that everybody that is called to Christ should experience a sense of grief over one's own sin and should seek to tear open their hearts in front of God and say, God, not my will, but your will be done. 
Not my power, not my authority or autonomy, but your power and autonomy. He goes on to say it is powerfully humiliating. Meaning it really is me saying I can't save myself. I can't be good enough. I I have to be humbled in front of Christ. And he says it's completely sin purging because through repentance, Scripture says, we receive the forgiveness of God. And then he says it's sweetly preparative for those gracious consolations which proud, unhumbled spirits are unable to receive. Those who think they're fine. So for Israel... Joel is saying, we have to remember the things we've been through so that we can constantly be returning to the Lord in repentance, like on a daily basis, looking at our lives, confessing our sins like we did earlier, and continually rededicating ourselves to him and his purposes, continually confessing, Lord, I have I have sought to follow my own path. I didn't even realize I was doing it. It was like suddenly I, I, I woke up and realized, man, what, am, what in the world am I doing over here? And continually coming back to him. And this is the story of our lives. It should be the story of our lives. This constant process, not so that we might be saved, but because we have been. Because grace has been extended to us through Christ. So for us, what is our stone of remembrance? Like, what is, what is the monument that's sort of set up that we look to and go, oh yeah, remember? The author of Hebrews is helpful here. This is Hebrews 12, if you want to turn there. Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 1, he says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Looking to who? Jesus. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted, so that you may not be tired of continually submitting yourself to God. In your struggle against sin, verse 4, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. God constantly redirecting and refocusing, not that way, this way. And if he didn't love you, he wouldn't put up barriers in your life or situations in your life that would make you go, wait, what am I doing right now? Who am I actually trusting in right now? What actually is my hope? He goes on in verse 7 and says, it is for discipline that, God, that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, he says. For what son is there whom his father doesn't discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then, you're not, then you are illegitimate children and not sons, he says. 
Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness, is what the writer of Hebrews says. He's painting this picture for us that life is hard, right? That life is challenging, that so much of life is suffering. And yet the stone of remembrance, the Ebenezer, is Christ looking to him and his sacrifice so that we will press on in this broken world, seeking to follow him and love him. Put simply, God uses the hard things in our lives to remind us of our need of him so that our eyes are turned repeatedly to Christ. Church, Jesus is our stone of remembrance. We are to look at the cross, at his suffering, and recognize that no matter what we will experience in this life, we don't have to experience that. Because he's done it. And what did we read this morning? That he is this perfect sacrifice. Once and for all. That his blood is sufficient. He's taken our sin. He's paid the penalty due to us. And if that isn't humbling to you, I don't know what is. And so let us go to him this morning in prayer and thanks, reflecting on the truth of what he has done, preparing our hearts to come to his table this morning, remembering that he is eternally good and his sacrifice is effective yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the stones of remembrance that you set up in our lives to draw our minds back to the sacrifice of Christ to remind us that, God, you are good, your power is enduring, and it's greater than anything we could ever muster or manifest in our own lives. Father, give us an abiding awareness of how desperately we need you. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.